Well, hello everybody and welcome. Welcome to the Words, Women and Wisdom radio show, streaming live from BBS in California, syndicating to over 100 stations globally and also popping up on my podcast at a later date. And today I am delighted to uh, have a friend of mine join me, Kay Williams. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Yvonne. And how are you? Doing great. Thank you. It's been a crazy week and I'm so pleased that we got this organized ahead of time. So I'll do your formal introduction in just a moment. And for those of you who are dialing in, listening live to this show, um, and you haven't dialed in before, what's it all about? Well, the Words, Women and Wisdom radio show is designed to showcase amazing women who are out there doing really intriguing activities, really interesting work. And I love to showcase those who have a passion, especially for helping women and for helping those who really need some extra insights and information. So most of the women on my show um, are doing amazing work. They've risen from tragedy to triumph and are now doing something that is worth showcasing for the world, as is my guest, Kay Williams, who's joining me today. So Kay, really interesting background. You can, um, If you're watching the video version, you can see that she has a best-selling book in her background. And her focus is on wealth. So today we're going to talk about wealth, women, sorry, wealth. <laughs> I've got wealth, women and wisdom on the brain. Wealth, women and what's important to you. So did you know that it's estimated that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation? And 90% will lose it by the third. And uh, Kay will fill us in on the references for that. So for the past 25 years, attorney Kay Williams has observed life stories. She's gained insights on building generational wealth. She's an attorney. She's a Commonwealth fellow and a proud mom of three. She has helped hundreds of business owners and professionals find joy in their wealth today and views personal planning as a, a part of a, a success mindset. So she's going to talk about this and some of the things she discovered as she was writing her Amazon bestselling book, Seven Legacy Steps to Building Generational Wealth. So she's now on a mission, on a mission to demystify, to provide simple and practical personal development steps that pretty much anyone can start to take control of building their generational wealth, building that journey today. So I know that there was a really interesting story that uh, was inspired by her mother. So I'm delighted to have Kay join me today. So thank you for coming on the show. And thank you, Yvonne. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So let's dive in. I know that your mom had a significant role in how you shaped your thinking about this whole topic of wealth. So let's uh, sort of set the stage. Where are you dialing in from today, by the way? First of all, I'm dialing in from the island of Barbados, which is in the <laughs> It's a lot warmer there than Calgary, Alberta, where I am. So Canada. And I visited Calgary and it's beautiful. Yes. So tell me about how uh, your mum impacted your thinking as you were growing up and how that shaped some of your work that you're doing today. Because I know it's a really interesting story. We talked briefly about it before. Yes. Well, there are two things that 
impacted my mother's philosophy on life. And these two things are part of her life story. The first thing is that she was born in the 1930s and grew up in the 1940s. And the, the, econ the economics of the time, it, you know, there were, it was a large family and not everyone could go to school. So her, her, um, her schooling ended at age 11. Her formal schooling ended at age 11. Ended at, oh, not started. Ended at age 11. Ended at age 11. Wow. So okay. we call primary school because we have a British system here yeah. of um, education. So it ended at age 11. And she always said that her teachers begged her mother, please send her on. But it just wasn't possible. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing. Second thing was that um, as a 19-year-old, she got caught in a hurricane. What happened was the hurricane bore down on the island in the middle of the day. There were no weather system warnings in the 1950s. So everyone was going about their regular duties. She was babysitting her toddler niece over at her aunt's house and the weather changed. And like anyone else, you're 19, you're with a toddler and you're thinking, I better, I better get back home. So she's running through what she thought was a storm, not realizing it would be a hurricane. And she takes a shortcut through the church, the local church, uh, which was the typical shortcut that you would use. But as the winds picked up, it just became impossible. And she said as she continued to run, literally she could feel the ground no more. She was lifted up by the wind. And she said at that point, she just prayed, no when she was lifted up by the winds, she was actually blown into the fork of a tree in the churchyard. But over the noise of the wind, the priest who was sheltering with some other parishioners said, something's wrong. I'm hearing something outside. She's screaming. The baby's screaming. She's holding on to a fork of a tree. And she's thinking, dear God, don't let me die. She said, somewhere... Somehow, someone heard me, <laughs> and out the priest went outside, although the parishioners were saying, don't go out, it's, not da it's dangerous. He said, no, something's wrong. And when he looked outside, there she was. And so they formed a human chain, got her down out of the tree, and she um, weathered the hurricane in the church. She wow. always said, that was my second chance. Wow. And, and, there, she, and she saved she saved the little one too, the toddler. And the toddler as well. And she up to now she said, I don't know how I hung on to her, the tree, everything, I don't know. But um she said that was my second chance at life. So uh she lived to the age of eighty six. She passed away earlier this year in July. And she thank you. For decades she always said, um, she always grabbed a hold of life with both hands. And she always told us, remember, I want you, if I pass away, I want you to lay me to rest back in that churchyard where I got my second chance. Hmm. And that's exactly what we did. But as a, she lived to age 86, she was full of energy. She had a philosophy where she held on to life with both hands. So that philosophy, in turn, informed everything she did. So remember, her primary school education 
ended at age 11 and she had no formal schooling after that. Right. So what she did was, once she got her first job working, she learned how to sew. And she used her sewing along with her first job, clerical job, to self-educate. So she went to school on evening. She told me she'd wake up at 3 a.m. and sew. And then she'd go to work. Then she'd go to school and then come back home and do it all again. But the beautiful thing about that is, is that she worked her way up from clerical to a type of school to a secretary. And by the time she retired, she was a senior secretary to a permanent secretary in, the, in government in the Ministry of Trade. I so, know this, I, is, this is just such an amazing journey. And obviously, you know, watching that journey yourself, and seeing her success through sheer focus, determination, hard work, I'm sure played a very significant role in shaping your childhood and what you saw and what you experienced and your values, right? Yes, yeah, she, um, as I said, she, she was full of energy. She was a person, once she got into the room, you knew she was there. But she taught me, she had two children, myself and my sister, and she always preached excellence. Um, although she was self-taught in sewing, she actually became known for doing custom wedding gowns and bridal parties because everything she did, she always went after excellence. So yeah. whether we liked it or not, <laughs> my sister and I, we were taught excellence was really what we always had to strive for. Um, never letting opportunities go by, grabbing hold of life with passion and with both hands. So that shaped a lot of what I do today and how I view life today. Yeah, well, I can imagine. I mean, if you're going to be spending hours sewing at three o'clock in the morning, you could be sewing, you know, the hemline of somebody's dress and that's going to be, you know, I don't know, fifteen, twenty dollars or whatever. Um, or you could be making adjustments to someone's wedding dress, which is obviously a much more high caliber um, and seem to be higher value to the person who's who's receiving the service. So what a great lesson to be taught early on. Lovely. And how did that shape how did that shape your desire to become a lawyer? Well, I think. What I didn't realize is that I had a front row seat to financial savvy. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, just going back to the wedding dresses, um, my sister and I jokingly recall, we had to hand stitch pearl beads onto the wedding dresses. She, she was so meticulous. And uh, we didn't love it at the time, but we, we now understand that she, she was already sort of self-taught and realized the value of things. So as you said, she already had a sense of savvy that she would move from doing a regular outfit or coat to doing fine, uh, bridal work, which had a greater value and you still had to, you still had to work just as hard. Right. Um, one of the things though, another thing about um, my, both of my parents that they're actually great givers they were both in service organizations, well-known service organizations. 
Um, my mother and my father were involved in the Lions Club and traveled for international conferences. And again, we were taught to roll up our sleeves and help. Yeah. We were taught, we were taught, whatever you do in life, I always, my mother, because she was denied formal education, she said, my girls are going to get a, <laughs> the highest possible education that they, I can afford or that you can, you want to go after. Don't stop learning. Yeah. So part of what I learned in addition to financial savvy was giving back. And I initially, the law was something that attracted me. I used to read voraciously. And uh, reading and the law was just something that naturally attracted me. And he thought that I could be of help and of, of assistance in this profession was something that was very appealing as well. Mm. It's, it's so interesting. There's, I see a lot of parallels as you're talking. Um, this, this concept of only going to school until age 11. Um, I was educated in England as well. And I remember the 11 plus the 11 plus was this exam that you had to pass in order to determine whether you went to grammar school which is where the smarter kids went or secondary school where the sec where the not so smart kids went and the grammar school was considered very posh very high level and secondary was like mm. and coming from a middle class family um with my my, my dad was a, a stock controller it's a very structured, very rigid sort of personality. Um, when I, I actually flunked my 11 plus and instead of taking the attitude that your mom did of saying, you know what, you know, what can I do? He was absolutely livid. I remember when the results for that exam arrived in the mail and my sister, who's three years older than me, was already in grammar school and him ripping open the envelope, all excited ready to see my results pass and that you know literally his his face went red his eyes went black and he literally screamed at me you failed you will never ever be successful in life and he stormed out I'm just about to go into high school right oh, wow. and I mean that that um that event, you know, was a certain amount of trauma for me. Um, yeah. It was actually the impetus for me writing my, my best-selling book, Words, Women and Wisdom, The Modern Art of Confident Conversations, because that whole experience, I mean, he came back from the war with PTSD, so he got a bullet in Dunkirk. It made him uh, appear a very angry man, although in reality, I realized later that he was actually just not diagnosed. He was not treated. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of men came back from the war with PTSD and just they didn't have the resources to treat them. So that that um, frustration bottled up inside was what turned him into this mean person who, you know, he took the car keys away from my mom. He wouldn't let her um, drive the car. He doled out this very meager housekeeping money and I mean, you know, he basically took away her freedom. She was a professional woman as well in the typing pool at one point. And when she married late in life, she thought that, you know, everything was going to be rosy. She was going to stay home with the kids, raise the babies. And it wasn't like that at all. She was controlled by this very, very mean man. So she was actually my first unmentor. She taught me what I needed to learn, but not by by role modeling it by being the opposite by becoming 
um, stripped of her dignity and her freedom and becoming this very quiet, diminished little mouse. Um, and that was what I saw growing up. So it's, I, I love interviewing these, um, uh, uh, you know, and showcasing these amazing stories because it does, doesn't it, shape so much of how, who we become later in life. It does. It does. And um, I understand completely because our um, our educational system also had the 11 plus exam. Yeah. Tremendous amount of pressure on young people. Yeah. Um, now, my again, because my mother was denied, um, she took a different approach. She always said to me, Kate, your best effort is good enough for me. Right. Um, do your best, but I'll be pleased with you, whatever you do. It so happened that both my sister and I, um, we passed for the top girls' school. At the time, there was uh, separated boys and girls' school. We don't have them now. Um, they're both co-ed now. But we, talk, we both passed for the top school on island. Um, she, of course, was thrilled. Yeah. And she always encouraged education precisely because she was denied yeah. and had to had to had to bootstrap and scrape and get where she needed to be yeah. but um the pressure that comes from that means that sometimes once we got into the top schools the top schools then shape you sometimes very differently because as you said the grammar school very high standards a long history, um, and sometimes when you got in there, you sort of lost a little, sh shaved off a little bit of your confidence because now you are among, you're told you're among the best of the best, and you were the best that wherever you were, you came, or when you come over there, they actually delighted in knocking a little shine off of you just to let you know that, you know, you have yeah. so much further <laughs> Well, so much further to grow and be, so. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's so interesting. I did actually end up going to the grammar school because okay. because after my father calmed down, he went back and he pitched for me to be uh, joining the group because I was such an excellent athlete. So in essence, I kind of got in on a scholarship um, on my sports capability because I was very active and. Um, excellent in many many sports including netball and uh, field hockey so that was how I ended up going to grammar school the same school as my sister and then of course there was extra pressure as you said but the pressure came in the form of I've now got to prove myself and I, I really wasn't the academic that my elder sister was um, however later in life um, when I chose and I wasn't forced to do something I chose um, later on, after um, a 20-year-long 20 20 career in working in high-tech uh, high startups, uh, working as a VP for a global talent management firm, uh, decided that I would actually take my executive coach certification. And there was a, a few other educational um, achievements along the way. But that one in particular, coming out with a 4.0, it was like, yes, <laughs> because I'm not an academic. I'm a people person. That's why I work today as a coach supporting mission-inspired women entrepreneurs to help them and teach them to flourish in business. Having gone through what I've gone through, having seen 
through the various startups, what does uh, contribute to success and what are some key things that you've you've really got to pay attention to it um, and having some, you know, some failed businesses in my world too, as well as success. It Mm -hmm. does all these, all these lessons. I mean, I consider there are no failures in life. I wrote this in my book, no failures, only opportunities to learn. And you can either learn the hard way or, um, you know, school of hard knocks, or you can go through academics and then apply it. But life is an adventure. And you got to take the the high road and the high peaks with the valleys. Otherwise, it's flatline. It's boring. So I'm so glad that she she taught you in her way some of those core principles and the value of education and that you've now taken that to, to really focus on the generational wealth building piece. So tell me a little bit more about the the way the book came about. Yes, so I um in my practice, and I have a civil law practice, and I do property and estate. Um, I've observed life stories, and I've also walked through um, a number of things with my clients over the years. Right. And I'm blessed that they, many of them share their stories with me. Um, Sometimes all all they need to know is that they need to be able to have sometimes a plan, a careful plan, and that can make life sometimes so much easier. Um, When I do estate, usually it's on the other end. Someone has passed away and we have to sort out their affairs. And um, one thing I did observe is the the huge relief that someone has when they come in, they of course grieve that they lost their loved one. But everything is so well organized. They know where everything is. Um, They would have put an estate plan in place. Uh, And also too, there may be enough finances that they're not also going through difficulties having the estate sorted and this is regardless of income level because I also work with some clients that have humble estates well organized and they come in and the assets they know exactly where the assets are going to go they know where everything is we've also dealt with largest very large estates as well and that one common thread was that beautiful sense that everything was taken care of yeah and the opposite is also true when someone passes away and you have as i i would put it two sets of grief because you have the grief of the loss of the person but then you're going through a lot of trauma and drama you're trying to find where things are insurance policies may have lapsed or where you thought you would have had access to cash, you don't, you didn't know this, you're not sure of that, you have no clue where their accounts are. And so you you see the distress that occurs. Um, So what I would do is when my clients came in to purchase a property, purchase, or they had a, what I will call a, a life event, which is 
they're welcoming a child, grandchild, they're um, purchasing a large asset or um, they're either going through a separation, divorce, or they're about to be married. I usually start to say, well, I want you to enjoy what you have today, but I want you to also plan. Plan so you can enjoy it today, but plan for eventualities. Right. And right. I've seen that cycle work repeatedly for those who put that in place. And I, I came back around to saying um, one of the things that coming back to my mom, uh, she wasn't wealthy, but she had that financial savvy. She was really very good with money, very good with money. <laughs> so she taught us a few, uh, what we would just say, common knowledge things about saving. She um, taught us about saving and investing and putting forward. And I watched her have a comfortable retirement. I also watched her find joy and enjoy her savings. Because one of the things that she did is that when she retired, just before she retired, she always said, I want to travel the world. And she did. She toured Europe. She'd been to Italy. Spain. She went to London several occasions. She went to Egypt. I have a picture of her on a camel in Egypt. <laughs> she sat on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, so she traveled. She went to so many states within the United States as well and Canada as well. Um, she went to South America. Um, we, have, uh, we have a whole album of her travel pictures. She enjoyed the wealth that she accumulated. And the wealth worked for her because she had a comfortable retirement. Remember where she came from, the humble circumstances, the, um, the disadvantage of not having her schooling and so on. And that's where I realized that we could put things in life in place to enjoy our wealth today. It's not only about when we pass on or what we leave behind. It's yeah. also about what we can truly find joy in today right so, so what, when how old was she when she retired do you remember my mother would have retired probably anywhere between ages 60 or 65 and as I okay. said she then Just worked lived, she then lived to 86 yeah so I think that you know as um as we've now got access to better health care and different health regimes um, you know, people are living longer in general. I mean, that's a 20, you know, if you retire at 65, that's a 21 year time frame. And if you have not got that plan in place of how that's going to work, then it just creates um, a, a life that is kind of dull, whereas it could be really incredible. So this is such valuable work that you're doing, Kay. So what did you what did you learn yourself as you were writing the book well I think as I wrote the book I think one of the things that I realized is um the whole area of estate planning or the whole area of retirement planning because I, I learned something very important we we as human beings we don't like to think in long time frames what we call generational time frames right it's tough to think 30 years from now. It's tough to plan for 30 years from now. One of the things I, I realized in my research is that we actually have 
we actually have, the way our brain is wired, we have something called delay discounting. And by that, I found out that we actually, in the neuroscience part of our brain, we are happier planning for the next coffee, for the next vacation, for our next birthday. But when we have to plan well into the future, we tend to want to delay that. We want to deal with the here and now and the immediate. So when you find it difficult to think about, uh, okay, I want to take care of myself or I want to do something for my family, for me to explain to you in a 40-year time frame would be tough, naturally tough. Hmm. Now, you know, as a business owner, and you also worked in the corporate environment, that after a while, you get more comfortable thinking in 5, 10, 15, 25-year span. Yeah. But initially, it was tough to do. So that was the first thing I realized that it has to do with actually our, the wiring. So when, sometimes when clients come and I say, oh, I, I don't like, I, I'm not ready to think about that yet. I realized that you have to give, like with anything else, you have to give someone actionable steps. So if your plan is to lose a large amount of weight, your coach is going to break it down into immediate steps you see now because if you look at the amount of weight you want to lose, you think to yourself, I can't possibly do it. It's just too much. So I realized I have to, in writing the book, make steps actionable, make steps clear. The other thing that um, was very interesting when I, I, I went through the book is that um, we will plan as business owners in five, 10, 15 year plans, but we have to have a parallel set of thinking. So as we think business-wise and plan in 5, 10, 15-year plans, you're also going to think in 20, 30, and 40-year plans as well so that your business will go through several cycles or your professional career will go through several cycles even while you're thinking generationally. So as you said, you had a, a successful business professional career and then you're on to another step and that is natural and that is normal some people work for 30 years and then they say oh I have still have a lot of living to do yes you do and that's fine because you have to accept that life will take you through several cycles and being able to embrace and hold on with both hands embrace the cycles that you will go through professionally and personally as you provide for yourself and your, for your family, once you have those two parallel tracks going on in your mind, it is not so daunting after all. Mm. It's so interesting because, you know, I can, I can relate to what you're saying on the, the weight loss piece, because that's something that this year has been my focus to have a, a healthier, an 80 pounds healthier body by December 31st. And I'm down 30, uh, 37 right now. Um, yeah so I've made a, a you know some lifestyle changes in my in my diet in particular diet and exercise um and you're right 80 pounds seemed daunting but once the first 15 was um was uh showing on the scales it just made it so much easier the other thing is you know when you're talking about 
this this concept of business if I think about my own career journey um, because of that experience with my dad when I was age 11 I did not have a desire to stay in school you know my sister went on to college and university and and I had no interest in that Um, I you know as soon as I could get out of school at 16 I was like out and so I chose then what I wanted to get educated in. And at the time, my my biggest aspiration was to be a, a secretary. I know it sounds strange I, now. I, but I know. <laughs> I, I went and I did, you know, I did this typing class and, and shorthand and typing and did that for several years. And that led me into some other roles. And then eventually went back and got some uh, business management education and then went on and did my executive coach certification as well. And then I've just continued with, you know, professional designations, um, you know, six intelligences coaching, certified uh, in uh, emotional intelligence, um, in Reiki and a whole bunch of other pieces, which has been a significant part of the journey. And my decisions, a lot of my career decisions were actually based around my son. And you and I have talked about my my son, Alex. He's now 26. He's a special needs child. So very often I would, in the corporate arena, I would be challenged where all of a sudden I had to rush off to the hospital because he's having um, you know, a seizure or something with his health. And my boss didn't always understand that need to drop everything and, and put family first. And having several of those really challenging conversations, once that last corporate role came to um, an interesting discussion point, I decided, you know what, I'm going to just go do my own thing. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to put in place a framework that supports me and my desires and goals and dreams and my family time. Because if I can't control it, then it just makes it so much more challenging. So I took out of the, uh, out of the mix that steady salary but it gave me more freedom to be able to, as I did you know, in this last week, you know, sort of stop everything, put it on hold and be at the hospital with him. And that has shaped, shaped my journey as well. It's so interesting what you're sharing. The other thing is about the, um, the concept of grief. So when you're dealing with people who are in that, um, thrown into that estate conversation because the plans are not in place what I've observed and you know in my own experience too is when you're in grief mode you can't make big decisions anyway you can barely make small incremental decisions and if someone asks you something that you you need to make a decision on that's much more far-reaching and longer in time you just can't do it it just adds extra stress doesn't it yes it does it's an absolute fog it's an absolute fog. Yeah, and, and you went through um, this yourself just recently with your mom, so I know yeah. that you understand. And the closer the relationship we have with the person, the deeper, obviously, that um, you know we have to manage through those yeah. through those emotions. So, um, and that is why I, having observed it at the point of grief, it's very tough to talk to a client and say, "Well, look." I know that what you went through with your partner has been tough. And I beg of you, please put something in place for yourself. Yeah. They'll hear me, but they won't hear me. Yeah. <laughs> and I get that. 
So that's why I started to try to have conversations earlier. So if someone comes to me, as I said, at the point of purchasing a property, or a couple comes to me and they're either recently married or they're making some sort of business decision and so on, that's when I started having the conversation and I realized they can listen then. Because usually they're, by that time, there's some sort of life lesson somewhere that resonates. Oh, I had a friend that, you know, their mother, their father, their partner. Oh, yeah, that's true. And I can have that conversation then. And precisely because you don't want them to suffer that grief at the end, you start having that conversation now. Now, why I actually say in my book to find your why and find your joy. Why would you want to build wealth and why would you want to find your joy? Um, it's because if you, if you simply pursue the accumulation of wealth without purpose, without passion, then you are just being, you're just being a miser at that point because you're just accumulating wealth for the sake of accumulating wealth. Oh. I found that 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 will not make you happy. That will make you actually quite miserable. But if you accumulate wealth because you have a passion, you have a purpose, for some people, it's their family. For someone else, it's a cause or a belief or an organization or a charity that they're completely, you know, they absolutely love. Um, they have a mission in life. Whatever it is that's your reason, your purpose, your passion, then as you accumulate wealth, not only to take care of yourself later in life, but also to make, so you can do more good in the world. Yes. That is, that is really where you see wealth working really well. And find your joy. Find your joy. So even as you accumulate wealth, take some time to find your joy. Actually, most things that give you joy probably don't cost a lot. But take the time. My mother wanted to see the world. She did. Do the things that give you wonderful memories so that as you are on the wealth building journey, you're also constantly reminding yourself of your passion and your purpose. And you're going to take your wealth and probably help others on their journey as well. So that's why I found it was a more balanced approach. And that's part of the reason why I... I put that in as one of the steps that you ought to include. But yes, grief is, when you're at the stage of grief, it's, it's very difficult to have any kind of conversation at that point. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the word fog has come up in many conversations. Um, this is also, you touched on something which is near and dear to my heart. So the concept of mission inspired businesses, those are the, those are the, clients that I get the most excited as I'm working with them is the women who know, um, you know, either because they've read Viktor Frankl's, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, um, or through their own life experience, that when we have that purpose, which is bigger than, greater than just ourselves, that is what will keep us going when we hit these harder, you know, roadblocks in our business, because we all have peaks and valleys and things we didn't you know we thought we we're going to work out the one way and they didn't for whatever reason I mean that's the 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 life of an entrepreneur it's about you know risk and reward and yet the the people that I admire the most 
um, you know, the Richard Branstons of the world and the Oprahs of the world um, are really the people who are, as you say, using their wealth for good. Um, you know, Tom's Shoes is a classic example I bring into my work a lot when I'm talking with my clients about marketing and about building out their ideal client. So who is your ideal client and what is it that's going to keep you going and motivated when things get rough? And it's those those clients that have that very, very strong, <clears throat> excuse me, beacon that's pulling them forwards. That's what's going to get us up and out of bed every day. When I wrote my my best selling book, you know, I had a plan. Um, I got up at five every morning. I would do my half hour of you know meditation and gratitudes and my visioning exercises, my normal practice to ground myself for the rest of the day, and then I would write for an hour. And it was almost like the words got downloaded through me. So although I can you know say yes, I'm a best selling author. Um, as well as a radio show host and an executive coach, etc., the the words were literally downloaded, which words needed to be in the book. And the energy of reciprocity is something I talk about too, because you know, we're here and it's not only about making a great living. That is the basis for being able to make choices in life, especially as women. It doesn't make us happy necessarily, but it sure gives us choice and choice makes us happy. And I'd much rather be choosing to be doing things with some wealth versus without. Um, But it's that mission inspired element. And if my clients come to me where they have a business and the business is sort of running them and they haven't quite got that piece figured out, very often we are looking at, you know, how do we add staff? I've interviewed and hired about 6,000 people in my career. So yes, that whole journey of stepping from a solopreneur into a CEO and how do you do that? How do you add your team? How do you bring them um, bring them into the business where they really do feel empowered and own their role? That piece I get great joy out of. And then incorporating something if they don't have it already to have it be a mission-inspired business where it's not an add-on at the end, you know, that's one option to say, yes, my, my, you know, 10% of my profits are going towards my favorite charity. That's better than doing nothing. It's even better though, when it's baked in, like Tom's shoes for every pair of shoes that sold, a pair of shoes got donated to a child in a poor country. He didn't have to do hardly any marketing because people loved it because it made sense and it warmed their heart. And that's the kind of work that I'm passionate about doing as well. And, and and that's why for me, I am on a mission. Women are great implementers. I, I love our brothers, of course, but women are great implementers. And um, one of the things that um, I found that worked very well is that when I especially speak to women, I said, okay, here's the checklist. Make sure you have these in place. It's simple. Make sure you check on the beneficiary information, your partner's beneficiary information. Is it up to date? Um check on this or you have that when they put those plans in place i've had clients come back to me and said to me you've made such a difference and i realized that just by having some simple steps where they realize that there are ways that they can build and hedge for the things that will happen in life um a study showed that the average adult life will have anywhere between four to six 
income shock in an, an in a working life and what are income, income shocks? shocks i love that word yeah. <laughs> and an income shock is any life transitioning event that has a big dollar sign attached to it so it could be a medical emergency it could be um which loss of a job or if you're in business loss of a large contract an investment that went went south um you could uh, any kind of separation death separation divorce that tends to have a, a an income that is has an income impact and what i've discovered is that sometimes two or three income shocks can happen at the same time because you might God forbid, just lost your job, but then now you're faced also with a medical issue. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, I can't handle the two at the same time. But if you had buffers in place, whether it be saving, insurance, um, you know, investment, you had a low debt to equity ratio, so therefore you could get a loan. Those are the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that what I call buffers, they're handrails. When life gets, you know, things get a little tough and squeeze, you get a little squeeze, you have handrails, little safety rails in place. And um, so do I have to, you know, you tell your clients, do you have to reduce your spending or do you have to increase your revenue? Did you set this aside? Did you put it in place? Um, the beneficiary information is an important one because we have situations where, for example, your partner may have, uh, benefits, whether these work benefits, insurance benefits, and when they first started to work, they may have put their mother or their little brother on because they're, you know, they weren't attached. Right. And then they never changed it. Yeah. And then they never thought to change it. And then here are you, you are the significant other, the spouse, and you never thought to ask. And you never thought to check until you need it. So these are little things that, uh, actionable steps that I put, I ask my clients to put in play. Uh, when they're buying a property, I said, make sure that you always hedge that if something happens to the roof, to the floor, to the this, to that, you are not caught in a position that would then lead you to a place of ruin or a place of really difficult place. And, um, Women, as I said, tend to be really great implementers and they come back and they tell you, you know, that really worked because you know what happened? And, you know, that is the mission I have to give actionable steps, help women just think through a few things right. so, that, so that life doesn't hit them quite so hard. <laughs> right. Because we will have income shops. We will have them. Yes. Research shows we'll have them. But the question is, have we prepared ourselves for them? Right. So um, minimizing the pain, for sure. Um, I know that there was several insights that you and I talked about previously that uh, were learned. So definitely about wealth is wealth is not only money. It's the golden fabric of your life. I love that. The importance of finding your joy, you, you mentioned that and living out your legacy today. So it's not only about the future state. Um, financial mentoring is important to you. Talk a little bit about that lesson. Yes. Um, the reason why I put in financial mentoring, again, everything is research-based. 
uh, Merrill Lynch, in their private wealth group, they did a study of families who had a minimum of $3 million in invested wealth. That's in invested wealth. That had nothing to do with other wealth. And they found that almost 70%, 67% or so, have never talked to their families about their wealth. Another 10% flatly said they never will. Now, you have a minimum of $3 million, probably more, in invested wealth. You probably have other assets and cash assets and liquid assets. And you have the majority, almost 7 in 10, are saying that they haven't discussed wealth or financial matters with their family, immediate family members. And I'm thinking, who are you giving this wealth to at the end of the day? Or is it you, you haven't given it thought? And um, when I did more research, I realized that it has nothing to do with how much money you have. Generally, it is difficult to speak about wealth. Many people say that it's tough to have that wealth conversation. So the question is, if I have a brand new car parked and I'm the only one who can drive it, I'm the only one with the keys, it means that there's no day I can take a day off and say, okay, it's still my car, it's still my journey, but you know what? I want to see the leaves turn. You do a bit of driving while I sit in the passenger seat. It means that those around you may or may not know how to deal with wealth. So the day that you can no longer drive wealth, the day you can no longer drive, be the driver for wealth in your family, you have to hand keys to someone else. They probably can't drive. And that is why, although the corollary hasn't been made, we notice that wealthy families tend to lose their wealth in the second generation. 70% lose it in their second generation. And another 90% will lose their wealth by the third. Because there's a pattern of degeneration with wealth, unless, you have a commitment to financial literacy and financial mentoring. So those around you need to know how to deal with wealth. Right. If you are on a wealth journey, if you are accumulating your wealth, those around you also need to know how to deal with wealth. Yeah. And that is, you wouldn't hand the keys to the brand new car to someone who doesn't have a driver's license. Right. So financial, financial mentoring means that you have to surround yourself with people who understand and have a commitment for financial literacy. Yeah. Now, I'll come back to those who are mission-based as well. Your why could be your family members. Your why could also be a charity that you absolutely love and then one day you want to give or you want now to give something significant to them. You have to make sure that when they receive that gift, that they know how to build and grow and not just spend it. Right. So financial mentoring has to occur between you and your why. That's what my book is about. Financial mentoring has to occur between you and your wife because you are, you are the current driver 
on this wealth journey. And it's your journey, it's your vehicle, but you shouldn't be the only driver. Others have to learn how to drive as well. And I love that. Question. I love that analogy. That's that's so simple to help people understand this concept of continuing the the like the legacy. Pardon the pun, because your book is called Seven Legacy Steps to Generational Wealth, and I love the uh, the the golden egg on the cover. The that was golden essay. great, yes. great name, great design, um, extremely valid content. And looking at this importance of, you know, the personal and family um, financial mentoring, absolutely. Once you've earned it, I mean, you've, you know, generally worked pretty, pretty hard or pretty savvy uh, in a pretty savvy way to accumulate, make sure that it is um, that nest egg is protected. Absolutely. Um, the, the contribution for women in particular comes from watching my mum having the dignity drained right out of her and swearing that I was never going to be that woman. And then also that when women have their own wealth, when they have their own income, when they have their own business, that gives them way more control over their life. It gives them way more choice. So that's ultimately why I wrote my book, Words of Women and Wisdom, The Modern Art of Confident Conversations, so that it helps women to elevate their confidence through having more powerful conversations, through asking for what we want and getting it by creating ways that we can, in fact, ask and showcase our value. So we don't feel like it's bragging. We're simply stating, here's what we did. Here's how we did it. Here's why we did it. Here's the result. Here's the impact. And now can I have a raise? <laughs> I'm basically not, not asking in quite that fashion, but by showcasing, you know, here's what the industry um, role, the industry recommendations are for this salary, the industry trends. And here's the work that I'm doing. Let's have a conversation about how I can be at the top of the range. What are the additional skills and characteristics that I still need to learn or to showcase in order to demonstrate my value at the higher part of the salary range? Um, yeah. I had a client just without sharing any names or breaking any confidences just last week, who was you know, talking about a salary increase of 10%. I'm like, yes, in today's economy, to be you know, moving from a, you know, a one and a half to a 3% increase to get a 10% increase, yes, <laughs> through using powerful language. So, yeah. Kay, I'm, I'm so glad that you're able to join us today. And as we start to, to wrap up this interview, such valuable insights. I know that you brought a gift to share with the listeners. Can you talk a little bit about that and where people can find it and how to stay in touch with you and this very valuable work that you're doing? Thank you so much. Yes. Um, if you go to my website, 7legacysteps.com. Seven the number legacy, seven, right? The number seven. Yep. The number seven, legacysteps.com. Okay. You'll be able to download a free assessment. It's a guided assessment that just asks you a few questions about whether you're thinking generationally and whether you are bringing your philosophy into your way of living. Because those two questions of whether you're really um, 
whether you are really bringing your philosophy into living is part of that beautiful fabric we talked about, that golden fabric. Because mm-hmm. wealth isn't only about money. Wealth is what is that beautiful um, set of relationships and the things that give you purpose and meaning. Those are yep. all part of the wealth that you enjoy. Right. So it's a guided assessment that takes you through and starts your thought process on the wealth journey that you are encountering today. Lovely. Well, what a beautiful gift to give to the listeners. Thank you so much for bringing that. To also have some other ways to keep in touch with Kay, um, you can certainly stay connected through her website. You can also connect with her on Facebook, or facebook.com slash seven legacy steps. Again, it's the letter seven. On Instagram, uh, Seven Legacy Steps, Twitter, Seven Legacy Steps. There's a theme here. Um, and obviously through her personal LinkedIn page, uh, K, K-A-Y-E, K-A Williams. So many, many um, valuable wisdom nuggets shared today. Thank you so much for joining me. I also have a gift for the listeners as well. If you're intrigued to learn more about my book, Words, Women and Wisdom, The Modern Art of Confident Conversations, The best way is to go to my website where you can actually right now download chapter eight as a complimentary gift from me and find out more about how to pick up a copy of the book, either on Amazon, in hard copy, ebook copy, or now it's on audiobook as well. So my website is wordswomenandwisdom.com. And this time it's spelled out A-N-D versus and ampersand so words women and wisdom.com click on the red button on the left you'll be able to download a complimentary copy of chapter eight and let's get this conversation rolling where women in particular can have more power in their conversations and generate more wealth thank you Kay, for joining me it's been a pleasure and i'm wishing you a fabulous week thank you yvonne it's been a pleasure thank you for having me thank you Well, bye for now, listeners, and please tune in to the next Words, Women and Wisdom show.